between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zaphon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So we made ready his chair. Uh, so he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them all. Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army overtook them and encamped, uh, encamped at the sea by Pi-Hahirath in front of Baal-Zaphon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out to Egypt? Out of Egypt, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. Yahweh will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word to your hearts. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord before we get to the message this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to have heard the, your word, your inspired word, that which was inspired by the person of the Holy Spirit to be written. We thank you that we were able to hear it with our ears. And Father, I pray that this time of preaching, this time of bringing the message is such that it's brought with clarity, it's brought with understanding, it's brought with boldness, but it is also received with ears that can hear, ears that desire to receive it and apply it into our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning's message is entitled, The God Who Masters the Enemy. So on that theme of mastery, have you ever found yourself struck by awe when you have seen somebody who has mastered their area of trade? and you just stand back and marvel at how well they perform. Maybe it's the ice skater. It's the, the one who, I, I remember back as a child in 1972, I was eight years old, and my, my dad, for whatever reason, maybe it's because it's the first time I realized that, and he used to do this before, but he rallied our family of 10 kids, and we watched the 72 Olympics together. And he was fascinated. I found it interesting when he was fascinated, I found myself tuning in a little more closely to the ice skating, and particularly the women's ice skating. And you would watch the feminine, graceful moves accompanied by the strength of these athletes as they would jump up in the air and land and be able to support themselves and not crumble under their own weight while they're turning and twisting. And you would see the timing component of all this. And yet everything was done with such grace and beauty. It, when I got to the end of, of watching this with my dad, I found myself drawn in as he was and being amazed at, well, that, that's really neat. That's a picture of something that just kind of takes your breath away. Well, the same thing could be true of chess players. I happen to be drawn to strategy. I, I am 
amazed by people who can think moves ahead, who can strategize out and know the different vari variations that are available. I think of the master chess player. These guys not only have to know every possible move that they can do, they have to know the counter move for every move of their opponent. One of the reasons why I stand in awe is because I don't have a mind that can think that far ahead. And a little bit of it is I'm a little lazy. I don't have the desire to try and get into it that much. My son keeps trying to get me to get that place where I'll play chess online with him. He'll make a move on his phone. I'll make a move on my phone. And I'm like, oh, son, I don't have the time for this. But I'm still standing in awe of those that have that ability, I think, wow, what minds they have to be able to, to look ahead and know all the variables and all the pieces on, the, on the, the board itself. Or how about the artist? I'm going to give you guys a, a visual, a person that most of you will get a visual of, when I say Bob Ross. Oh, my gosh. Channel 8, PBS, being able to watch him step up to a, a, a blank canvas with just so many paint colors yeah, sitting on the, the whatever you call the thing that, that he has them on, and he dabs a little here and he dabs a little there, and he all of a sudden there are scenes that come to life. And you're just amazed. My wife and I, you know, at first I thought, oh, I'm never going to be able to watch this. This is going to, oof, this is too slow. I got I to gotta have something a little more fast paced. And then you stand there and you go, oh my gosh. And pretty soon I'd be going, you know, Cindy would have to go do something in the kitchen or whatever. I'm like, babe, you got to see what he's doing. This is crazy. I mean, this didn't look like this at all. And we just stand in amazement. We are created to, to appreciate awe, appreciate mastery. And the, the, the challenge for us when we look towards human beings is the figure skater falls. The chess player makes the wrong move. Even Bob Ross would make a wrong stroke. Now, he would say there's no mistakes. You can always fix it. But he would actually make mistakes. We as human beings, we fall short of true mastery. But we have a God who is the master overall. He is creator, which means he has created all, which means that he is master overall. And not just master as in sovereign, but master as in he has mastery over all. And what I mean by that, I'm playing a little bit with the words in that he ha can master even the heart of man, even the heart of those that are his enemies. And that's what we'll watch take place today. If you'll take your bulletin and turn to the back, you'll see our takeaway today. And it's part of the sermon outline. Our takeaway is this, and it's really a challenge or a charge. I hope you don't see this as command-like form, like I'm bossing you around. I'm not the boss of you. We all have a wonderful God who lovingly draws us into recognizing him as our master, as our Lord. But I want to word this in a way that challenges you. Knowing the ways that our God masters our enemy, and here's the challenge, the word there is must, must shape our response to the battle that lies before us. We have to realize how is it that God masters our enemies so that we can recognize when God is at work in our life and not misperceive what is happening. That's the tendency. If we don't understand our God, we will misperceive and you will ask questions like, why am I here? Or the despair of, you don't love me because of this is happening in my life, this dark providence. I did nothing to deserve this. And those are the wrong statements to make. Those are the wrong questions to ask in the midst of it. And we can, we can help not go there if we understand our God better. Or at least if we start to go there, we can correct ourselves because we remember who our God is and how much he loves us and what he is doing on his stage, which is so much bigger than the ice rink, than the chessboard, or the painted canvas. It's all of the world over the course of time from beginning till now and into the future. So today we're going to look at the God who masters in. I mean, our first point here to this morning is Yahweh frustrates the mind of the enemy. We have to recognize that sometimes what God is doing, and we play the part of receiving some of the, the, the violence that the enemy wants to bring upon us, 
we have to realize what God is doing to the enemy in the midst of that difficulty that they have placed us in. That means the enemy has placed us in. So in reading Exodus 14, 1 through 4, we see this. Then Yahweh said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back. Well, you have to know, at the, it, we read last time, our last uh, passage was in uh, chapter 13. The, do you remember that the Israelites wanted to turn back? He knew if he took them down the coastal highway and that they would, if they engaged in battle right away after fleeing from Egypt and they would engage in ba- battle with the Philistines along the coastal highway, that he knew that they would cry out, we just want to go back. We just want to go back to Egypt. Why die here? Let's just go back to Egypt and be in bondage. Well, the, the, the go back is actually the same word here. They would want to turn back. So now we see that when we saw that, their turning back, the Israelites turning back, was, was a bad thing. But now we see Moses, by inspiration of God, using the same word to get us to start seeing a contrast. And you're going to see contrast back and forth in this whole passage that God is playing with the minds and the hearts of the Hebrews so that they would gain, they would grasp what he is doing. What looks like something is bad can be for good. It's it's the the message here. We have to see beyond the the surface of what we understand. So he says again in verse uh, 2, tell the people of Israel to turn back. Well, this isn't making sense to anybody. The enemy's behind us. We are going this way away from them, and now you want us to turn back. That would be hard for any of us to comprehend. Clearly, safety is the other direction, and you want us to go back where we're going to receive the consequence of danger. This can't be good. Can it? It can if God says it's good and it's right. So that's where we, we end up. And we end up, he says in this, as the verse continues, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point out three different names. Now, names in the Hebrew are extremely important. We can't always know. We lack some of the knowledge of some of the names. But most of the names, because of archaeology and understanding the other languages, like Akkadian, uh, uh, as well as some of the other Semite languages, we can, we can know what these words mean. And so we've got to do some attempt, because if we start to, to dig in and figure out what these words mean, all of a sudden the stage that, that this is playing out on is going to become more real to you and me, and we'll understand, in this case today, we'll understand the realness of the Hebrews fear. So let's take a look at this. He says this, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. Uh, You shall encamp facing it by the sea. All right, we just said some very difficult things to say. These words mean nothing. These names mean nothing to us. The Pihahiroth, there are two understandings that where we see this. It can be either one meaning or the other meaning. Either it means mouth of caverns, which makes no sense to our context, or it can mean mouth of wrath. And I believe it's going to be it's accurate to see it as mouth as wrath because we are about to see God unfold, reveal his wrath upon his enemy. He is drawing them in to receive his wrath. And then when you see between Migdal, this is a, a neat visual. Migdal in Hebrew is a pillar or a tower, a very tall tower. And these were towers that were typically uh, built inside the walls of fortified cities. These were towers to look out at the oncoming uh, enemy, and you would know. It was a picture. This tall tower is a picture of the military might of whatever uh, group of people has this tower built. So in this sense, God has turned them back from the sea so that in their line of sight is the tall military tower that would be a very real symbol of Egypt's strength. Do you remember last week what the cloud and the fire, what shape they were in? When, when described in Scripture, they're in the shape of a tall pillar of fire 
or pillar of cloud. So you can see God allowing the Hebrews to get this visual. They can see right in front of them the God that is leading them, and it's a massive tower of fire or cloud, or they could see the smaller, which used to be look very big, tower that they would have, would have feared because that's the military might of Egypt, and both would be visible to them. And he's setting the stage so they see that there is an opposition here. There is a comparison. Only one of these military strengths are going to be able to stand. The other is not. And then it says in front of Baal Zephon. Now, anytime you see Baal, I'm purposely pronouncing it. A lot of times in the English, you'll just see Baal. In the Hebrew, you get both. And Baal is the word for Lord. It's where we get Baalzebub, Lord of the Flies. We, we get Baal Zephon is the Lord of the Sea. It is a false god that the Egyptians believed in. So we, we see we've got, we're, we've got these, these things running around in the Hebrew's mind. We've, we're in a location where it's referred to as the Mouth of Wrath. We have Migdal. We can see the powers. Therefore, the excuse me. We can see the tower, which represents the power or pillar uh, of the strength of the Egyptian army. And all of a sudden, we have this false god who's supposed to be lord of the sea. Which, by the way, the sea has got them. So, uh, they're up against the sea. They can go no further. And that's where we pick up right here in verse three. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel. Now you can see God moving the chess piece. He's so many moves ahead of this little peon who wants to be the serpent representative that's going to oppose him and try and oppose what he is doing to have his people serve him, meaning that God's people were always told, serve me. Egyptians, let them go so they can serve me. And Pharaoh says, oh, no, 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 no. They're going to serve me. And there's this tug of war back and forth. So we see this. For Pharaoh will save the people of Israel. They are wandering. In other words, they are moving about aimlessly. They are confused. Well, that's a shot at God. If you've got a pillar of fire uh, uh, by night and a pillar of smoke by day leading you, and that's your God, and it looks like there, that there's confusion, then it's a, it's a stab at God. And he's thinking there's this understanding that, oh, I've got him. This God is not as he may have defeated the other through the, the plagues, the other 10 false gods of Egypt. But this God has got him boxed in. Watch how the wording shows that. They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. This is how Pharaoh will be thinking. In other words, the wilderness has boxed them in, and, and this false God has denied them access, passage over the sea. There's nothing to take them through, through safety or over the top of the sea to get to the other side. And he continues on, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and his hosts. And the host is the idea of military regiments. And the Egyptians shall know. In other words, they will experience. It will not just be intellectual knowing. They will experience that I am Yahweh. I am the self-existent one who is the creator over all. I have power over all my creation. There is no false God that can stand in opposition to me. And it continues on, and they did so. Again, let's just, before we move on, get clarity. This is a setup. This is God setting up Pharaoh. And he's setting him up in a place where God can clearly demonstrate his superiority to his people as well as the Egyptians. Explicitly, it says that the Egyptians will know. Implicitly, we know that the Hebrews will know the superiority of Yahweh to any of the gods. Well, how does this apply in our own lives? Maybe you've, you've been in the midst of tribulation, whether it's at work, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in your personal life. Maybe you're a student as a young person here, and you've experienced tribulation, and you're trying to make sense. Why am I experiencing what I am experiencing? I have this outside force that seems to be attacking me, whether it's people that are being mean to me, people who want to see me not, not succeed. Well, you have to realize that there are times that God brings about a frustration of the mind of the enemy, and you are just one piece 
on the chess table. You are absolutely loved and an important piece, but he is doing more than what you can initially understand. He is allowing the mind of the enemy, the one who has said, no, I don't want God. In fact, I'm on the side of evil. I don't want anything to do with, with Jesus Christ and all of that Christian stuff. I'm about what's getting right for me. Those people, at, at some point in their lives, God gives them over to themselves, and he starts, you start to see him dealing with or frustrating their mind. What they think is right for them turns out to be their own destruction. We need to realize that we are sometimes... We are not the focus of what's going on. We are the recipient of evil, but God is dealing with that evil. To understand that is to help us know that, that our God still loves us, and we don't get to that place where we become accusatory to God. Well, if you love me, you wouldn't have that person hate me or treat me that way. There are th other things going on in, our, in God's economy. Well, we can move now over to, to point number two, Yahweh compels the heart of the enemy. Not only does he frustrate the mind of the enemy, but he compels the heart. He pushes the heart along in times of punishment and judgment upon them. Let's read in Exodus 14, 5 through 9. It starts with this. It says, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh... Now, the translators, this is a good translation, because they're using our understanding... We say, oh, you know, you tricked me. We think, oh, you messed with my mind. Actually, in the Hebrew, the word there is lavav. It means the heart. And it helps us track this whole time through this exodus. God keeps dealing with the heart of Pharaoh and the, and, and the Egyptians as a whole. The first five uh, uh, plagues, you could see where Pharaoh was stubborn on, on his own doing. And then after that, God says, I give you over to yourself, basically. And the last five, God says, I'm hardening your heart because you're on a trajectory for punishment. I'm tired of you being stubborn. You are worthy of, of your judgment today, not at, at, at the bema seat, not later on when the rest of the world is judged. Sometimes ju God judges us, those that are evil, in the here and now, on the face of this earth. And that was what he has chosen to do. So we see God, he... The, the heart of Pharaoh and his servants were changed, it says. There's an altering going on. So let's see what he does in that change. And his servants were, was changed towards the people. So how they view the people, before they were telling the Israelites after the 10th plague and, and all of the firstborn males had died, they're like, get out of Egypt. We don't want you here. Well, that is what is being changed now. The hearts of the, of the Egyptians are being turned uh, away from the, the uh, if you will, uh, the blessing of telling them, go away, to now they realize, and it says, and they said, and this is the Egyptian speaking. Remember, in, in the Hebrew language, it's cyclical. When you hear phraseology and you hear the exact wording picked up again, you're supposed to think back. If we were Hebrews, every time we hear this phrase, it will cause a chain effect backwards to the first time we hear it. So what he says is, is this. It says, these are the Egyptians saying this. What is this we have done? The first character in the Bible to speak those words are God. And he says to Eve in Genesis 3.13, he turns to her and says, what is this you have done? What did she do? She took from the tree of good and evil. She determined that it was right in her own eyes. And she said, this is good and pleasing. I'm going to take. She, that tree represented what, it was the tree of good and evil. It represents our dependence on God to determine good and evil. And Eve, followed by Adam, said, no, I'll play God on this one. I'll determine good and evil. So here we see the Egyptians Moses is playing with this. Moses wrote Genesis under the inspiration. Moses writes Exodus. Moses writes the first five uh, books of the Bible we know as the Torah. And he's pointing out what has gone here. This is by God's inspiration that they speak these very words. They are determining that them having left or allowed their slave labor force, the Israelites, to go, which is what God had commanded them to do from the beginning, They've determined now 
oh, that's evil. We shouldn't have done that. What God said was good, they say is evil. Now watch, we're going to see that continue to all the way through this passage. And, and they said, what is this we have done? That, that we have let Israel go from serving us. In other words, again, the, the slave labor force is on the run. And guess what? If you're in a society where you don't do uh, slave labor, and your slave labor is gone, somebody's going to do it. And Pharaoh's going to determine who's on the bottom. Think about how much they want to get the Hebrews back. I don't want to do all of that making of the bricks and building of these, this, this hard labor to build all of these, uh, these projects that the Egyptians have and making a name for themselves, making them a great nation. Verse 6, it says this. So he made, so he made ready his chariot, speaking of, of Pharaoh, and took his, his army or his people with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. And Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh. He made sure that he is going, he's moved it to changing. I'm not going to let them go anymore. I'm going to chase after them. And he's made the hardening, remember we talked about before, is making it resolute. He will not stop until he captures them. So he continues on, and Yahweh hardened the, the heart of Pharaoh, the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of, of Israel. The idea of pursuit is he is in a passionate state of conviction. He will catch them. If it costs him his life, he will catch them. He doesn't realize it will cost him his life because God has changed his heart in such a way he is blinded. He can't see that his desire is his own destruction. It will lead to it. This is God's punishment upon him. While the people of Israel were going out, so let me back up. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. I have to be frank with you, that made no sense to me when I got there. The whole theme of this passage is as the Hebrews are terrified. How are they going out defiantly? Some versions say boldly. Something doesn't make sense. When you look at it in the Hebrew, this is actually a prepositional phrase. I'm going to get a little geeky. If you're, if you're an English major, you're going to get it. And if, you, if you're not, I'm going to make it clear anyway on a different level. So it means woodenly. This is what it is saying in Hebrew. It means with or by a high hand. Well, the translators of the ESV interpret that high hand to be, oh, like a high-handedness that the Israelites have, and so they're going out boldly or defiantly, like, ha-ha, you can't get me. I'm going to outrun you. I'm going to do whatever. I've got my God. You know, hey, we're going out with, with this, this great courage and defiance. I agree with the Hebrew-Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament. I did not get this on my own. I just knew it didn't make sense to me. And it states that this high hand is not the focus being of the Israelites, but it's under the upraised hand of Yahweh. This is a statement of protection that they're going out, not a statement of their boldness of heart. This isn't a, the focus isn't the, the Israelites. The focus is how big and gracious and powerful their God, Yahweh, is. That's what they're going out under, the protection thereof. So they're reminded, the Hebrews that are down the road, that are reading this, that are not partaking in this, would know that this is a scary thing. We're on the run, but we're under the hand of protection. So let's see how our people uh, handled this, if this is the first time a Hebrew child is hearing this story. So it continues on in verse 9. The Egyptians pursued them pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them. The idea is that they caught up to them, encamped at the sea at Pi Ha Hiroth in front of Baal Zephon. And we see here again that the God has caused Pharaoh's heart to be so hard and resolute, he is going to, at his own destruction, Make sure that he catches them, and he's not going to destroy them. He's going to bring them back, is his intention. He needs a slave labor force. But he has caught them, and his thought is, they're mine. Certainly they will pay. There will be brutality brought upon them. 
but they, they are needed, and so ultimately they will be used as objects to, to build his kingdom. How many times do we miss that in the midst of understanding God? This, what we see on the political landscape, on the moral landscape of not just the United States of America, but the world, the deprivation that we are racing to, we might be tempted to say we have an, a God that doesn't care. He's distant. He's, maybe he's sleeping, slumbering. He certainly can't be here because it's not just the United States that's falling apart morally and that hates anything to do with God. It's the world. We are now a smaller community now that we can communicate and see the, the rest of the world. It's just amazing, this infection of hatred towards God. Is it possible that God is bringing about a ruin to those that willfully chase after their false gods, that put their faith in all of these chaotic, chaos-building ideas of how this natural order of God's world is supposed to play out based on their, quote, scientific methods or whatever it happens to be. I mean, they changed the, change, uh, genders, so that now there's uh, over 100 genders that are accepted by people. You sit there and you go, this is lunacy. Maybe your God, my God, our God is not out of control, is not sleeping, is not in a place of not caring. Maybe he's allowing, he is bringing forth destruction on, their pe on these people by them living out their own ways, by them, their minds are ruined. I read earlier this week, and I won't say the, the crime because it's a disgusting crime, but there was a, a, a very big criminal that has been deemed unable to stand trial because his mind is so messed up. He basically is a babbling fool, and he's not playing the game. He's got nothing up there. It's all mush. This man, if I were to tell you what he has done, you would go, well, this is an evil, defiling person. And yet I can't help but think God has given him up now at the end of his life over to the futility of his thinking, and he has nothing Nothing more he can do against mankind, and he is an example of this is what you get when you pursue that which is chaos and evil. This is the end. And we're reminded by that that our God does not overlook justice. Our God is a just God. That man is seeing his justice just like Pharaoh. He's seeing it in this life. Most of the time when we see the injustices imposed on us by people, we're left to realize, God, you probably are only going to take care of this, only meaning finally taking care of this on the last day of judgment. And I won't see justice to that person that has wronged me. And we need to stand on that and realize that's okay. We are not vigilantes. God is a just God, and justice will be served. And we need to stand on that truth and take comfort in that. The, the, our God is the master even over the enemy's heart whether it's Satan himself, his minions that play false gods, or his offspring, those here in human form, those are, that are human beings, but choose to follow a false god named Satan. God is even in control, sovereign over the enemy's heart. Well, let's, let's end with this. Yahweh silences the power of the enemy. I think that this is where the most application can come into our lives. Because there's a, there's a play going on here. This last, part, this last uh, few verses here, the enemy really becomes the consequence of sin. The enemy really is fear. And I want you to hear this carefully. Because everyone in this room has experienced fear. And I want you to see how Pharaoh, uh, excuse me, how the Hebrews dealt with fear so we can understand and know how we should deal with fear. So let's take a look at this. Exodus 10, excuse me, Exodus 14, 10 through 14. When Pharaoh, it's interesting, that's, that is emphasized. It's been God doing, God doing, God doing. Now uh, God, through Moses, he foregrounds Pharaoh. He's saying, Watch what I do with Pharaoh here. When Pharaoh drew near, 
The people of Israel lifted up their eyes. We have seen through Genesis and Exodus, every time we see that, that statement, lifted up the eyes, to a Hebrew it means, uh-oh, something big is happening, good or bad. It means something significant is happening. If that's not enough to get the children's attention that are going to be told this orally or are going to have this read to them uh, later on in their, in their lives, he even follows that with the word behold. Behold is a, is a place setter. It means slow down, stop. This is super important. Get this. So he uses lifted up their eyes and behold to say this is something important. They're going to see the salvation of the Lord. Watch what happens here. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. The idea is that the Israelites, they can now see, come into view over the horizon, the marching of the battlefield. The chariots arriving, the foot soldiers would be behind them, and they would be taking positions on the battlefield. Some are going to bring death to the, to the Hebrews. Others will be enslaved and brought back. So you get an idea of how overwhelming this scene would be as they could hear the rumbling of these chariots, so many chariots and the foot soldiers as they break the horizon and they see them. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. Man, does that word in the English not do justice. It means, and they were terrified. Now, if you've ever been terrified, I mean terrified, I've had my voice squeak before when I've been, I mean, you're just caught off guard and it just makes a noise you didn't even know you could make. And you almost freeze and you're like, your mind's racing, your body's not doing anything. And you're like, ah, you're just overwhelmed with terror. This is what they're feeling here. The mind races for an escape and the, the limbs aren't getting the message. This is the picture of what's going on. And the people of Israel, thank God, Listen to what they do. They cried out to Yahweh. Fascinating Yahweh is who they cried out to. In the beginning of the book of Exodus, it says that the people were distressed and they called out to Elohim, which is they didn't know Yahweh's personal name. They cried out to just the God of power. They're confused. They have assimilated into their understanding some of the, the Egyptian understanding of who the gods are. And so they just are crying out to that God that is the God of our forefathers, that God, come please save us because we're overwhelmed by these gods. Now they know a little bit more. They cry out correctly to the God who covenanted with their forefathers, Abraham, and they refer to him as Yahweh. So they cry out to, to Yahweh out of desperation. And that's about where the good stops. Everything else they do is something you and I have done. They start out well, and man, is it just like a cliff they go off. Let's follow what they do. Verse 11, they said to Moses, is, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness? Oh, this is biting sarcasm. Sarcasm is a Greek term. It means, to, it means woodenly to tear the flesh. Jesus and Paul uses it every time uh, directed towards only the leadership of Israel that is betraying Israel, that they are oppressing Israel by, by causing Israel to not believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That's the appropriate use of, of sarcasm. Sarcasm used by God through Jesus and Paul to attack, if you will, the status of their leadership of the Jewish community that is betraying the Jews. So you could start to see that sarcasm by the Hebrews is way off base. This is very sinful. This is attacking Moses' leadership. He's, let me read to you again. They said to Moses, it is, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Now you have to understand, Egypt is known for their many graves, their fascination with death, and the afterlife. This is meant as a smack across the face to Moses to say, seriously, are you nuts? Really? There aren't enough graves? You just want us to, to occupy the graves now? This is a direct assault on his leadership. And then they say this, and it says in your ESV, what have you done? 
if I could just say this is the exact same wording that Jesus, excuse me, that God used in the garden, and it is this, mazot ashit, and it is, what is this you have done? They are playing God over Moses. We have determined that what you have done by bringing us out here is evil. God has told you to do this, so it's an attack on God as well, Yahweh, and you are doing this, but we are determining, we're standing in authority, what you have done is evil. And you can see how messed up their thinking is. They started out right, and boy, are they going south in a hurry. And then they continue on. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Again, serving Pharaoh over God is what they want to do. They want to, serving has that understanding of worshiping Pharaoh as God rather than worshiping Yahweh as the God who covenanted and has all along told them, I'm going to take you out. I'm going to deliver you from this bondage. And they continue on in verse 13. And Moses said to the people, and here is a command by Moses. God bless Moses. I would have ripped into them first. I would have, it would have gotten personal. I would have laid into them. He doesn't do that. This man is a humble man, and he just gives them the right command, and it seems to me he gives it in a loving way. He says this, And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh. Well, I want to show you something really cool here. Because salvation, right there, that word salvation, if you leave it in the Hebrew, it is Yeshua. Do you know the name of Jesus Christ? In the New Testament name is Jesus. If you were to say Jesus using the Old Testament, the Hebrew, if you spoke his name in Hebrew, there, I finally got to say it clearly, it is Yeshua. You talk to Jews today uh, uh, that are uh, Jews that are New Testament Jews, they believe in Jesus Christ, they will call him Yeshua HaMashiach. It means Jesus, the Messiah. The Yeshua is taken from here. They wouldn't know, but we know because of where we stand by God's grace. We're on the other side of Jesus' salvation. We can see this and go, oh, this is cool. This is referencing Jesus himself. This is a, a foreshadowing of who is going to do the ultimate deliverance. We already talked about the burning bush, the, the presence of, the, of Jesus by way of being in the cloud and in the pillar of fire is, a, is the a, a Christology, a manifestation of the person of, of God in, a, in one of the figures of the Trinity, we know it to be Jesus Christ. So it's not a, just a theophany, something like saying, uh, the fire represents God. It's a Christophany, we know, because it, sa- it tells us in the Hebrew that in the midst of the pillar is Yahweh. Well, this Yahweh is the second person of the Trinity, the only person of the Trinity that will ever take on and appear to mankind. The only person of the Trinity that will not only appear in the Old Testament and he'll take human form in the New Testament, he's going to take human flesh. The Old Testament is forecasting who our Savior will be. And so we sit there and we go, wow, this is, Jesus is in the Old Testament. This is about Jesus doing the deliverance here. And we can see this correlation to the, to the New Testament. And he says here, Uh, Let me continue on. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. There's one word that drops out of almost every translation that I I looked at uh, this week. It actually says in the Hebrew, You shall never see again forever. It is emphatic. These people, don't worry about them. In fact, the only way you might see them is you're going to see in, in chapter 15 their dead corpses wash up on the, on the bank on the other side of the Red Sea. But you will never see them as a living force to haunt you, to oppress you ever again. I am freeing you from these people. And he says this, 
that we are called simply to stand firm, to almost like, it's like just, just, just watch. Just, just stand there and listen. You have only to be silent. How many times do we just need to tell ourselves, can I say this? I'm going to say it to me and you guys, if you feel comfortable, say it to you. Nick, just shut up. Can you just stop talking, Nick? Can you slow your mind enough to realize that God is in control of this situation? Can you not head down this destructive thinking where pretty soon you're accusing God? Yeah, I'd rather, basically, I'd rather serve God because it's by me dwelling on this so much, I am serving somebody else other than God. Well, let's, let, let's, let me sum it up with some, some, some points, just some bullet points. And uh, I was asked last time to talk a little slower at this point of the sermon so that you could have time to write it down. I'll try to. You can tell when I get excited, I speed up my, my cadence. It's just, it's so beautiful. It's so, such a, a neat thing to see the, what God is doing, and we can realize it more and more as we study the scriptures. So the consequences of the enemy's terrifying pursuit is fear. Let's, let me go over again. Where this, this, uh, follow this path. First, first, we started off with what was good. They cried out to Yahweh for deliverance. Boom. We need to do that. That's the first place we go. And then it got bad. They blame shifted and lashed out at Moses. And they ended up accusing Moses' leadership of being corrupted, basically. And then it got worse. They said, hey, we would rather desire to serve Pharaoh over Yahweh. And then it crossed the line. And they played God and said, this is not right, God. This is evil. Don't ever let yourself get there. If you have somebody in that you are in a closer relationship, I pray that they are forthright enough with you to say, hold on, hold on, hold on. You can be a psalmist. You can say, God, this is what it looks like. But the psalmist always corrects it and says, but God. This is what I perceive. This, is, this feels like I'm being overwhelmed. This feels like you're not there. This feels like when I pray, I don't hear you. You don't seem to respond. I don't know what to do. My mind is filled with confusion. As long as you end that prayer with, but God, I do know you're in control. Will you please show it to me? Help me understand what you're doing. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to stand by what you say is good versus what I think is evil. Fear is an enemy that can make you and me do things we would never do otherwise. Ever been there? I have. It's so fascinating how quick we can get there. Fear turns tribulation, which God says we will always have on this earth until we go home to be with the Lord or Jesus Christ comes back. It turns it into chaos. What is chaos? Chaos is the playground of Satan. Because if he's got chaos, he's got you confused. He's got you off balance. And you're going to do the things through fear that you would never normally do when, you're, when you understand the order or the orderliness, you might say, of how God is working out everything in the midst of your tribulation for your sanctification. You might even say this. We stop acting like image bearers because of fear, and we start acting like image bearers of Satan. We start acting like what PJ was teaching us and is teaching us in Daniel. We start acting like the beast. We act beast-like. We lose our thinking, our, the way we act, and we start goring the people we love. We start becoming an image bearer of Satan because now we are a blame shifter. Oh, I'm just doing this because of what you did. See, we are good at becoming the accuser in the midst of fear. It turns us into these beast-like animals. Do not be blinded by this. Recognize it. Stop it. If you need to leave the room in the midst of this, meaning that if you're engaging this with somebody else and you're goring someone, stop. I'm sinning. I'm sinning all over the place. I need to leave the room. I need to get right with God. I need to repent and confess. So what's the answer? He says, stop talking. Stop talking. Stand firm on the truth as we know it. 
The truth is laid out in the Word of God, and the truth is that Jesus Christ is the one that brought salvation in the Old Testament that we are reading now about, the physical salvation out of the bondage from the Egyptians, and he is the same God by way of his death and his resurrection that brings us out of the bondage that Satan would hold us into, bondage to our own sin. That is the power of God. That is the power of Jesus Christ. If you rely, trust in any other power, yours is a false hope. You have nothing to hope for. You have only despair in front of you. But if your God is Jesus Christ, who has delivered delivered you out of the power of Satan, out of the, the control of fear, then you understand that Jesus Christ is a delivering God, is a God of freedom, is a God who loves us enough to bring us out of our tribulation. Or maybe it's better to say he brings us through our tribulation so that we can see his power revealed. I wanted to end with this. I would just like to read to you Psalm 46. You've heard this before, this psalm many times. It's a psalm we go back to over and over again when we're in times of it just seems like the whole world is upside down. Let me read to you Psalm 46 and see if you can't see some of the references back to what we are talking about today. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the city of Elohim, it's referenced there, the the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totters. He utters his voice. The earth melts. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you that we are reminded that you frustrate the mind of the enemy. You compel the heart of the enemy, and you silence the power of the enemy. Father, help us not to fall to fear any longer. Help us to be reminded of the truth of your might, the might that you demonstrated through your Son, Jesus Christ, in our salvation. Help us focus on that, grasp that reality, and walk as those that are disciples of Jesus Christ, that trust completely in you, in him, in the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit and the power he has over us when we recognize him as master over us. We love you. We thank you. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.